Snapchat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of mouth do not apply here. One of my favourite brands of comedy area is brown people and black people in front of white people. have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. That's right, you're listening to Backchat, the freshest rap of news and current affairs on your radio. My name is Madison Connaughton and I'm here in the studio with Swetha Das. How are you, Swetha? Oh, I'm so good. How are you, Madison? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit tired just because I was out at Vivid last night. The um, the number one thing to do in Sydney, I've heard. <laughs> um, I also ventured out to Vivid. It's there are lights. There are lights. That is correct. There's a lot of lights. Um, not sure if they're, you know, that dynamic, but there are lights. <laughs> it's a festival of lights. You know what I'm saying? This is great chat. This is what people <laughs> come to FBI for every single Saturday morning. I'm just saying, like the brief said, it's a <laughs> festival about lights. They certainly delivered on the lights. Yeah. Not sure if it was as exciting as we all hoped it would be. I mean, it was. It was fine. Okay, <laughs> let's move on from this chat. <laughs> um, so this week it's National Reconciliation Week. Yes, and we have a lot on the show today. Really exciting. So today we're t- speaking to Teela Reed, a lawyer and human rights advocate about the Uluru Statement, and Nathan Sentence, librarian and First Nations Programs Officer at the Australian Museum to talk about reclaiming Indigenous voices in galleries and museums. So... They should both be great, and everyone should stay tuned for that. Um, But I think right at the top, it's worth just kind of flagging that we do understand that there are a lot of views um, within First Nations communities around Australia about Reconciliation Week. Um, You know, some people think it's a great idea. Some people think that it's kind of a government-led thing that doesn't really include enough Indigenous voices, and it's not led by community. So acknowledging that spectrum of, of views on the week... Um, but kind of taking a cue from the theme, um, which is don't let history... Don't keep history a mystery. Don't keep history a mystery. So we kind of want to take this week to learn um, and speak to some really smart people about some really interesting things. Yeah, it's going to be a great show today. But before that, lots of news this week. So apparently the North Korea-US talks are back on. It's exciting. Apparently Kim Jong-un sent a very uh, polite letter to Donald Trump and now they're back on. Do you realise that each week of the last three weeks we've just switched... It's on, it's off, it's on. <laughs> well, it's on, baby. I'm excited for next week. Um, Pauline Hansen had a breakdown on TV on the Bolt Report. I like that you saw this firsthand. Yeah, I, Bolt Report's great TV. What are you watching the Bolt Report for, Swetha? <laughs> I want to know what Andrew Bolt's take on Vivid is. Um, and Kim Kardashian is now a political negotiator. I did. I saw this, I saw this viral tweet photo, photo. going around. <laughs> um, I, there was a great tweet that was like, it was the photo, and then just imagine waking up from a coma to this photo. <laughs> That's great. Um, oh, but, you know, I think she's I, she's using her platform to talk about prison reform. I so. mean, it's really great. You know, she's talked about uh, very important issues in the past, and it's great to see um, celebrities using their platform to talk about real issues. Yeah, it was uh, gun uh, control, Armenian genocide, prison reform. Amazing. Love, love her work. But who would you say is the Kim Kardashian of... Australian politics. What a segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's definitely Barnaby Joyce. Yes. The man Correct knows us. how to keep a story going. He knows how to keep the tabloids. Milk it, honey. Yeah. <laughs> he has milked it because there's an interview coming out soon. Or has it already come out? No, it's coming out soon. Channel 7 is promoing it. Yes. To 
to death. A hundred and fifty k. So, just for context, if anyone's missed it, I don't think anyone could have. So. But Barnaby Joyce has been paid one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do an interview with Channel Seven um, about his relationship with a former staffer, Vicky Campion, and the child that has resulted from from that relationship. I mean, I think this whole thing just kind of feels a bit icky. Yeah. Um, but I think the best bit of it was this week. Barnaby Joyce got um, kind of called out for, for getting paid for an interview. And he really threw Vicky Campion <laughs> the into the press pack. <laughs> yeah. uh, here's, here's a little... Um, oh, actually, I think we've got it. Oh, I love, I love grabs. <laughs> yeah. I think you should have taken money for the interview. I didn't. It's, it's an interview, not just with me, it's with Vicky. It's, oh. it's with Vicky. You know what? I love love, and that's what they've really shown. <laughs> I think I think just the worst idea ever is if you are getting in trouble as a couple to just to say that it was your partner's fault. I, like, Vicky wanted to take the money. I didn't want to do it. Oh, <laughs> he's not going to see a cent of the 150K. I'm sure it's all going to Sebastian, the oh, little baby boy they have. Little having. Sebastian. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into the interviews because no one wants to hear about Barnaby <laughs> Joyce anymore. Yeah, so we're talking about the Uluru Statement. So last year, over 300 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders met at the foot of Uluru in Central Australia on the lands of the Anangu people for the First Nations National Constitutional Convention. It was here that the Uluru Statement of the Heart was drafted. It consisted of two proposals for the substantive recognition of Indigenous people, the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution and a Makarada Commission. The process was conducted by the Referendum Council, which was funded by the federal government to develop a model for constitutional recognition that had support from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But one year on from the convention, the Uluru Statement is yet to gain political support. Malcolm Turnbull has since distanced himself from the statement's key proposal for a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament, saying it was inconsistent with democratic principles. We've got Teela Reid in the studio to tell us more about the Uluru Statement and what it means for Australia moving forward. Teela is a proud Wiradjuri and Wildwin woman born and raised in central western New South Wales. Teela is a lawyer and human rights advocate. She was previously Australia's female youth delegate to the United Nations Permanent Forum and most recently she was a delegate to the landmark constitutional dialogues that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Thank you for coming in, Teela. Thanks for having me. What a resume. Yeah, it's a great resume. I loved reading that out. Um, so the Uluru Statement makes two key proposals. Mm. Can you tell us more about uh, the about them and their significance. So I'll just backtrack to one of the other things you said too, which is about the political support issue yeah, um, please, yeah. with for the Uluru Statement. Uh, one of the strategic um, points about the Uluru Statement was that it was a gift to the Australian people, first and foremost. Um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we know uh, government have a very bad history of uh, rejecting our hard work so this was this was a little bit different um, not only in the process behind the Uluru statement uh, but also the way it was presented uh, to Australians so we know we're going to get a hard time with politicians and we saw last year that uh, that Turnbull rejected the key proposals in the statement for a number of um, dishonest reasons mm. 
The Uluru Statement came off the back of a number of dialogues that involved Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for the first time in history in debates around the constitution because when it first came into force, we uh, were essentially expected to die and, and not be here. Um, so there was that presumption in 1901 um, and now the government have the issue they've actually got to deal with the fact that we haven't gone um and of course in 1967 we were counted and uh now we're still fighting for our voice to be heard uh in that in the democratic process so the key proposals that came out uh, were was first and foremost a constitutionally enshrined first nations voice to parliament um because what we have a history of in our communities is government making decisions for us, um, without us. And the community dialogues really debated this issue because there are a number of proposals that the communities could have put forward, um, which was, you know, it ranged from symbolism, so, uh, you know, a preamble in the Constitution. Community debated that idea. Community debated whether we should amend the race power in the Constitution. Um, they also debated whether there should be treaty and agreement making, uh, a non-discrimination clause. So these were robust debates um, that are historic. And what the community said was, we want to deal with constitutional recognition by um, proposing to the Australian people a First Nations voice to Parliament. Um, the other thing that come out of the Uluru Statement was the Makarata Commission. Uh, that word was gifted to those who drafted the statement um, by the Yongu people. And the term means coming together after a struggle. I don't want to misinterpret that much more um, but what I do want to say about the Makarata Commission was that it must come after a voice to Parliament because really it's about truth-telling um, and treaty-making and we we know that without a voice enshrined in the Constitution it's going to be very hard to engage in those truth-telling processes because you guys mentioned before as well you know this it is reconciliation week reconciliation the actual concept means truth and justice in Australia we're not very good at that process um, and that was why the proposal for a Makarata Commission was also put forward um, for us to properly engage and so people could tell their stories you know these dialogues we saw we saw aunties uncles elders pour their hearts and souls out their communities are so disenfranchised they're getting ripped apart by government um, and they want it they want their stories to be told and they want non-Aboriginal people to hear them as well because there's so much we have to learn about our history um, that we're not fully appreciating, I don't think, as Australians. But I really feel like our generation are really leading um, a lot of the change in this process. I'm feeling like there is a shift in support for this, absolutely. The um, I think the you, you spoke about having to kind of like reckon with what has happened mm. in this country before we can have any sense of you know meaningful um, reconciliation. Do you think that the the reticence of politicians to kind of acknowledge the reality of what happened in Australia sort of after 1788 is um, is holding back talks mm -hmm. around you know the, there's a reticence to talk about treaty or to talk about the Uluru Statement in any sort of meaningful way in politics and do you think that goes back to history? 
Absolutely. Yeah, it, it most definitely goes back to, you know, kind of the history wars. We've seen even recently after, well, we see each year on Invasion Day this boil to the surface, um, but really our mob are engaged in these conversations each and every day. And there is um, a resistance from politicians um, to to tell the truth uh, and and a good example of, of that was a few weeks ago with both the state and federal government now agreeing to put a Captain Cook statute out, you know. Yeah, a $50, $50 million, a $50 million memorial million. complex. Yep. It's crazy. Like, that, that kind of spend of money is, you know. But, you know, that the local lands council, like there, my understanding is, do support it. Um, but it to, I think, you know, from the outside looking back, it... It's a really key example of of history merging, but I guess we'll see how it all pans out for that mob. Yeah, I think yeah. You but it's a crazy spend of money. It, yeah, <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that other countries um, are dealing with um, talking about their history far better, like in Canada. But why mm. do you think Australia is lagging so far behind in the world? Um. <sighs> It's it, there's no single answer mm. to that. Um, if you look back, as I said before, there was a presumption we would not be here. So that resistance, I think, think still pans out in in politics, where um, you know even there's like, oh, you know, how come you can have three percent of the population do this, and you know the other ninety seven percent? There's all still those debates, but. I just think it's a lack of political will. Um, it's a misunderstanding of uh, our hard work. Um, and it also is a misunderstanding of, you know, we have this, I, I guess, framing of Aboriginal culture as a problem or a disadvantage in Australia. What we really need to shift our minds to is how much of that history is an asset mm. to us and how we could all embrace it. And that was what was really at the moral core of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It was a call for peace. Um, it was a call to share our history. Um, it was a call to see us as finally as equals. And so I think, yeah, those are the kinds of things that, that play out. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the there's kind of been really interesting sort of micro-level um policy shifts around um, I guess how Australia engages with First Nations people so like the expansion of the Koori Court is an interesting mm-hmm. example like it, it, it was shown to be very effective and, and it was kind of it's been expanded but then when it comes to these kind of bigger macro questions mm-hmm. there's just not really any sort of progress on them I mean I guess how at, at what point how much can you push forward on this when the government just isn't engaging? Like, in terms of, like, legally, like, what what can you do? Is there... Can you go through, like, the High Court? Can you... is but Or does it have to be kind of like a public swell of support for the Uluru Statement? A lot of our hard work has been in the courts. You know, the courts that we've historically have been a lot more progressive than the government or the parliament. Um, but... It's been pragmatic when you look at, for example, Mabo, 
those kinds of decisions um, have been made huge pragmatic progress. Um, but with respect to um, politicians, it most definitely we we do we need Australians to care about the issue. You know, we need to tap in to the consciousness of Australians, and if if that happened you know, through the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which I do feel like there is some groundswell. But there, you also need bipartisanship for these things to happen, right? There was bipartisanship going into the Referendum Council process. Um, and it's just... It's so frustrating um, that when we go through these processes and the work gets dismissed in such a vicious way, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just, OK, let's work with this. It was... It's a third chamber, it's this, it's democratically inconsistent, um, which is so fundamentally flawed. So there has to be something that the people need to get behind um, and support for, I think, the real change. And there are, there are Indigenous voices to Parliament in other countries. Like, it, when people say that they're, that that's, like, undemocratic or whatever, like, it already exists in other democratic Absolutely. countries. Absolutely. It happens everywhere around the world except for here. Um, you've got you know, the Assembly of First Nations people in Canada um, who meet directly with their government. Um, you've got ha seats, Maori seats in Parliament in New Zealand, in in Scandinavian areas, you have, you know, the Sami people who are the Indigenous people of that area have their own parliament. Like, so here we, we are just so far behind. Yeah. Um, would you be able to tell our listeners, you know, where can they go to learn more about the statement and, you know, what can we do to support it going through? Yeah, just literally Google Uluru Statement, read the Referendum <laughs> Council. <laughs> <laughs> read the Referendum Council's report is really important. Yeah. Start with the statement itself. Um, the statement is just a one, you know, A4 page. Um, and I think, yeah, people should read that. You can read the and read the referendum council but it's all over social media too if you're on social media um just search uluru statement things will pop up there's lots of debates happening on yeah. social media definitely thank you so much to us for speaking to us this is great um and we're definitely gonna keep track on this issue we're talking about national reconciliation week on today's show and we've had some we had a fantastic guest just before we had taylor reed um and now we're speaking to nathan sentence who is a wiradjuri librarian and first nations programs officer at the australian museum and he's here to talk to us about his very interesting take on the theme for national reconciliation week don't keep history a mystery hi nathan thanks for joining us today uh, you're jamal hey how's it going yeah good how are you very good, very good. Nathan, in your article for The Guardian, um, mm -hmm. you describe galleries, libraries and museums as um, sites of forgetting, erasure and distortion. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like, why you think that and, and how your experience as um, a librarian and curator kind of led you to that? Um, yeah, it's just that um, the idea of like, yeah, the, his the Victor Wright's history and very much manifests itself in libraries, archives, and museums. Um, and what happens with these spaces is because they're where we get history, the fact that whatever gets created in these spaces or whatever gets collected by our museums is actually what represents history. But that doesn't actually... Um, the problem is that what gets selected to go into museums gets chosen by people. And for the majority of the history, it's been chosen by predominantly white settlers in who've had their mind influenced by 
mainstream settler society. So, um, like, just recently I was talking to a cultural practitioner and knowledge holder of this local area, and what he did was he took photographs of, like, um, community events for the last two years, and he amassed, like, a thousand photographs. And what he wanted to do was give them to, like, a, a gallery or a library so that it could be part of mainstream recorded history like his, his local um, First Nations history, his contemporary First Nations history. And um, what happened was one of the glamour organizations said, yeah, we'll do that. Like, um, like we'll um, take your photographs, but um, out of the 1,000, we can only take about 100. And the 100 were chosen by the non-Indigenous um, collection manager, which is, you know, intrinsically not an issue. But what happens is she doesn't realize what she thinks is valuable. What, um, the 100 photos that she picked out of the 1,000 is what she considers valuable and not what the community considers valuable. And it continues this um, established practice from museums and galleries where First Nations people don't get to represent themselves. They're represented by other people choosing how they're going to be, how they're going to be part of recorded history. So like with archives as well, like um, for the majority of the first um, 100 years or 150 years of um, archives in Australia, record keeping in Australia, well, what is now known as Australia, um, Aboriginal people had no interaction with it. We were just written about, not, we never had a chance, we didn't really have the input on what was getting recorded about us. Listening to this is just, it's, it's really fascinating. And it, it reminds me about, um, like, I was looking at all these galleries and museums when I was in Europe, and I was just super mm. bored by the stuff they had on display in, like, Spain and France. And mm. when I got to England, um, I saw that there was this like fantastic Indian exhibition, um, I think at the British Museum, and I was so excited to go. And when I went, and it was just, it was beautiful, like so, you know, so much color, and I was just so proud of my history seeing it on yeah. display. Um, and then I read that everything on display was stolen when they colonized India, <laughs> and to know that something I'm so proud of um, has just such a violent history behind it and it's it's heartbreaking to know that you know people are going into these museums and looking at these like fantastic artifacts but not realizing who it's been taken from and the violent means that it's been stolen yeah and two other things that also happens with that as well is like it's what europeans find interesting about like different cultures so like what happens we say with First Nations people, it's like, it's not about the stories that have been told with the objects, it's what they think is the most interesting, which is not, like, a fair indication of our culture holistically, like, um, you know, like, um, I guess, like, if for Australian context, one of the things that always gets picked is sort of like, you know, something like, like rainforest shields from up far North Queensland, because they're really striking, because they use, they use reds and stuff like that, whereas something like New South Wales shields won't be collected as much because we um, we keep we make our shields a lot smaller. You know, there's just a lot of things like that where it's like like outsiders get to choose how culture is represented and how what is the most interesting to the public. And yeah, I guess and they are like um, it is a history of violence. Like one of the things I always try and talk about is that there's a perception that museum galleries, libraries, archives or are neutral, but they're also considered inherently good. Whereas I actually believe that um, a lot of those places aren't inherently good and in fact uh, their, um, their existence is actually part of colonization. Um, it's part of, it's a deliberate act of sort of trying to create a new history, create a new mythology. And, but also just the fact that they're part of colonization is actually what caused a lot of um, culture loss with 
particularly First Nations people, we, um, while culture is being preserved in these buildings, we're at the same time we're we're struggling to try and revitalise these same bits of culture. Nathan, um, I, I I think with museums especially, like they are like spaces where a lot of young people are taken like during school to learn mm. about history and they are really kind of these you know interactive history books and as you say how they're curated really shapes you know our understanding of of our history and of our country mm. and of what is still happening and i think especially um around the world in recent years there's been this push for um, museums to be spaces where people reckon with what happened in their history and, and is still happening. I guess I'm thinking of, you know, the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg and the Holocaust Museum in Berlin and there's the Lynching Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. I mean, I think these are all spaces where people go to reflect and, and kind of actively reckon with what's happened. Do you think that there are museums in Australia that are, that are doing this uh, with our history of colonisation? Yeah, yeah, there is, there is like, but um, not not in such a large scale like that. And um, like, just the National Gallery of Victoria is just at the moment, or just recently did the Frontier Wars exhibition about talking about the frontier violence and um, the wars that happened when uh, the colony was expanding. Um, um, the Australian Museum itself, actually, in our first Australian galleries, we actually have a permanent um, what we call the Wall of Social Justice. And basically, um, that actually doesn't relate to anything to our collection, but it just talks about things what, such as the Stolen Generations massacres, um, the Maulinga nuclear testing on Madhu country. And we have those things there because, um, like, we it's, like, not fair to just ha- tell stories about boomerangs without telling about the aspects of um, what happens from invasion and how that impacts um, First Nations lives today. So um, we have that wall, and so when people come into them, because people come to the Australian Museum too just to see dinosaurs and stuff, so it's kind of cool that, 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 that if they come, that they might stumble upon this wall of social justice and sort of read something that they might not know about. Like, it's very surprising that, um, you know, I guess it's part of what history's been taught, and I think it's getting changed now. Like, I, I know that um, the Solomon Generations is now, I think, part of the New South Wales um, curriculum, like um, primary and secondary. Um, but there is surprising, like, how many people, you know, like, um, I was talking to a lady that came to the museum who grew up in Kempsey. Mm. And she, she didn't know about the Stolen Generations, when Kempsey's actually the home of two of the largest missions in Australia, like, two of the largest missions in New South Wales. And, one, and the Kitchener Boys Home was considered probably one of the worst missions. And it's interesting that she lived, she lived in the same town as these missions, but she was, she was still not aware of this history. Yeah, I mean, reflecting back on, it, like, my education in high school and primary school, you know, enough is not taught on this issue. So um, yeah. it's good to see that things are changing, at least in yeah. museums and galleries. Um, thank you so much for talking to us, Nathan. Really appreciate it. And everyone should uh, definitely go read Nathan's article in The, in the Guardian. Guardian. It's great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll pop it up on the Twitter and the Facebook so everyone... On the Twitter <laughs> and <laughs> the <laughs> Facebook um, so everyone can give it a read. Thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, Mandan Yuru, thank you. <laughs> so uh, that's all we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Taylor Reed and Nathan Sentence. And of course, thank you to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska and Amelia Zhao. We're going to leave you with a track. This is Reparations by Divide and Dissolve.